I've said before that social conservatives need to know what they believe in if they are to turn the tide of extreme social liberalism that we have witnessed in recent years. As part of that process, it's important to understand that many of the ideological trends we are seeing are connected to each other. The number of children being referred to the Gender Identity Development Service, the UK's national service based at the Tavistock Clinic, has been rising for the past decade. But there has been a noticeable spike in numbers in the past five years. In 2013, around 400 children were referred there. In 2017, that had risen to around 2,000 children. The rise to public prominence of the transgender ideology in the past three or four years has been greeted with a variety of different responses. Unusually for a social liberal trend in Britain nowadays, these have been negative as well as positive. There has been trenchant criticism from some quarters, often from far-left feminists and gay rights activists. There is also widespread worry amongst parents at the rapid spread of transgender ideology in schools, being pushed through the activism of the likes of Stonewall. That concern from ordinary members of the public is muted and often expressed sotto voce with a glance over the shoulder. Nevertheless, the concern is real amongst very many people. In 2013, the British Parliament passed the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act, which legalised same-sex marriage. The new law came into force in 2014. According to opinion polls, same-sex marriage, despite being opposed by a majority of people at the time of the legislation, now appears to have been accepted by a majority of UK citizens, although, given the level of condemnation publicly heaped on anybody who disagrees with same-sex marriage, those figures should be treated with some caution. This has led to a puzzling phenomenon of parents and others who support having their children taught about homosexuality in schools being simultaneously uncomfortable about transgender propaganda. Presumably, it is because the two issues are viewed as quite separate and totally unconnected, but I would like to offer an alternative dissenting perspective. Political and social trends do not come out of a clear blue sky. They have philosophical and ideological roots. Policies often have unforeseen consequences, and sometimes, sometimes, those consequences are unintended. Same-sex marriage was understood by many people in 2013 to be merely extending the rights enjoyed by heterosexual couples to homosexual couples. It was, they thought, a simple question of equality. They believed that principally because that is what political activists told them, and because that narrative was repeated by political leaders such as David Cameron and a media unwilling to dig any deeper beneath the surface. Same-sex marriage is based on the ideological assumption that gender doesn't matter. If you are to be allowed to marry either sex, then gender has to not matter. It has to be irrelevant. And once you've conceded the principle that your gender does not matter, then the doors are thrown wide open for transgenderism. One follows logically from the other. In order to understand why it's been possible to establish in law the principle that gender is irrelevant, we need to understand why it was relevant in the first place and how it was deconstructed. The answer can be summarised in one word, procreation. The original foundational reason for marriage was the procreation and raising of the next generation of society. If you're interested, I examine that issue in more detail in another video entitled Marriage, Traditional, Same-Sex or Light. 
If the primary purpose of marriage is procreation, then clearly the sex of the spouses is of supreme importance. They have to be a man and a woman. But if we can redefine marriage's primary purpose simply as the public declaration of a loving commitment by two individuals, and not necessarily for the procreation of children at all, then the gender of the spouses ceases to be crucial or important. Any two people can marry each other if children are not required. The achievement of that separation of gender from marriage caused some headaches for the lawyers drafting the 2013 legislation that legalised same-sex marriage in England and Wales. English law had always required that, for a marriage to be valid, it had to be consummated. For same-sex couples that was physically impossible. The solution was therefore to abandon the requirement altogether. It completely redefined not only the purpose but the nature of marriage. No sexual act was now required to complete the marriage contract, and therefore, logically, no unfaithful sexual act could unmake the marriage. Hence, the 2013 Act explicitly excluded adultery as a ground for divorce in same-sex marriage. Sex, as a procreative act, had been completely decoupled from marriage, and marriage, therefore, had undergone a complete transformation of its purpose and essence. A redefinition, if you will. Traditional marriage was a crucial barrier to the acceptance of transgenderism, to the philosophical argument that gender doesn't matter. It was the only remaining institution where which sex you were was of fundamental importance. The difference between the sexes was the whole point. That distinction, in law at least, has been swept away. If you are comfortable with same-sex marriage, but worried about transgenderism, you are on the horns of a dilemma because you cannot choose one and reject the other without contradicting yourself. If you accept that anyone can marry anyone else, irrespective of their gender, then you have already conceded the principle underpinning transgenderism, that your gender is irrelevant. Many people have been shocked at how quickly the transgender agenda has swept across Britain in the past three or four years. But if you legalise same-sex marriage, transgenderism will increase shortly afterwards as night follows day.